a Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. It was around 5 p.m. and rush hour traffic was also compounded with Christmas shoppers and people just wanting to get home from work to spend the evening with family. Moms, dads, sisters and brothers, husbands and wives, and yes, children. Nearly all of whom were looking forward to the Christmas holiday and the promise of a new year. A promise that for 46 people would never be fulfilled. Suddenly, loud cracking noises sounded like gunshots, witnesses said, and then like a deck of falling cards as the cable snapped and people began falling into the icy cold Ohio River 102 feet below. Everything had to fall right into place to the second or I wouldn't be here. It was that close. It's just unreal. These are the words of William Edmondson of King, North Carolina. Edmondson was just 38 years old when the commercial truck he was driving toppled into the Ohio River, along with other vehicles when the Silver Bridge collapsed that night in 1967. He was only one of a handful of people pulled alive from the water by a boat captain. Edmondson said there was no warning that the bridge was going to fall. Or was there? These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is Episode 3 terror in the skies the mountain mystery of the mothman of point pleasant west virginia will be the last to fall i won't shed a tear for them to see There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. There are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan. I am so grateful that you've decided to join us for another episode of the Mountain Mysteries. T-shirts, travel mugs, coffee cups, so much more, including tank tops getting ready for the summer season. They can all be found in the links that are located below in the show notes on this episode. Please subscribe, like, and share. Tell your friends about The Mountain Mysteries. And remember, we're The Mountain Mysteries, not to be confused with anyone else. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have all the links on the flow page that's in the notes of this episode. And we'd love to have you subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a cool review. Okay, let's get started. Point Pleasant, West Virginia is exactly like it sounds, for the most part. Pleasant. The town rests on the banks of the Ohio River, where dreams have met with nightmares, and the people who call Point Pleasant home 
all of the just over 4,100 in the 3.10 square miles, know it all too well. It was here that the tragedy befell the quaint little town at Christmas time in 1967. Oh, but there were tragedies that would befall the area before the collapse of the Silver Bridge on December 15th of 67. A mining disaster in Mononica, West Virginia, 148 miles away, killed nearly 400 miners, many of them children, in 1902. It's been said, the whole area is cursed by the words of a powerful Shawnee Nation chief, Chief Cornstalk, but we'll get to that shortly. Of the 46 lives lost that cold December night when the Silver Bridge collapsed in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, all but two bodies were recovered. Over five decades later, there is serious debate about whether the Mothman caused the bridge collapse or was he simply trying to warn people about it? Some people believe the Mothman is connected to or is also known as Indrid Cold, a name for the Grinning Man who's supposed to be a supernatural entity who unnaturally grins at those who see him. Many guess that the Grinning Man is believed to be of an alien species. The first known sighting of the Mothman was in November of 1966, 13 months before the collapse of the bridge, and it was seen by five men at once who were digging graves nearly 80 miles away in Clendenin, West Virginia. The reports they offered stated that they saw a large creature that looked like a man with wings, and he had about a 10-foot wingspan. They said the creature was moving fast from one tree to another. Well, over the next 13 months, more than 100 sightings took place, and these were from trustworthy witnesses, like town couples who everyone knew and respected. People like firefighters, even the police, and larger groups of folks who had seen it at once. Yes, even the police had seen something. Not sure of what exactly, but it was definitely something. Most people know about the Mothman because of the Mothman Prophecies, a book written by journalist and author John Keel, and then later turned into a movie starring Richard Gere. The book and movie connect the Mothman to the townspeople of Point Pleasant, having psychic abilities and the collapse of the Silver Bridge. It was November 16, 1966. Two married couples, Steve and Mary Mallett, and Roger and Linda Scarberry, were driving late at night near the McClinty Wildlife Reserve, headed to an abandoned industrial area locally known as the TNT area, out on a joyride. The TNT area had been a munitions plant during the Second World War and was shut down after that conflict ended. Near the abandoned North Power Plant, they saw a seven-foot, giant, winged man. One person said he could have been as tall as eight feet. It was a creature with glowing red eyes and a ten-foot wingspan. Clearly, the terrified couples took off in their car. They also stated that whatever it was wanted to remain away from the car's headlights. The weird creature seemed uncomfortable walking on its feet, but once it shot up into the air, it became faster and seemed to fly away. Relieved, they turned a corner only to be confronted with a creature sitting on a hill, waiting for them. 
This time it kept pace with him. As the car hurtled along at speeds of up to 120 miles per hour, flying low over the top of them, they could hear its wings banging on the car roof. And supposedly it did some damage to the car's paintwork. The police took the Mothman very seriously. When Steve and Mary Mallett and Roger and Linda Scarberry arrived at Point Pleasant after being chased, the local police separated the teenagers and found that their stories all matched. Knowing that they were good kids who weren't known to make any kind of drama or problems whatsoever in the community, the police went back out to the TNT area with them. Well, the cops saw unexplainable shadows and puffs of dust, and their radios were distorted by weird static. It was the next day that they held a press conference, and Mothman was born, and even named after the Batman character in DC Comics. The Mallets and the Scarberries, who couldn't leave things alone, went back to where they saw Mothman and found strange tracks in the dirt, and thought... They saw something in an old boiler, and they took off again. Why? Maybe because they had questions that had to be answered. But you know what curiosity did to the cat, so they say. Linda Scarberry said later that she and Roger saw Mothman several times after that event, and she eventually decided that he was not malevolent, just scary as hell to look at. She thought that he wanted to communicate with her, but he was not able to do so. Mothman's only known victim, believe it or not, was a dog. Merle Partridge, who has also been called Newell Partridge as an alias, was a contractor who lived in Salem, West Virginia, about 100 miles from Point Pleasant. Well, sometime around the 11th of November in 1966, Partridge was sitting at home in his countryside property watching TV when his reception went haywire. His dog bandit was outside and started howling. So Partridge grabbed his shotgun and went out there. It's said that he saw red eyes in the distance and the dog ran off after them and disappeared. In the light of the following day, he looked for his dog and tracked his paw prints up until, well, they just disappeared. The dog was never seen again. Although two couples named Mallet and Scarberry, who had sighted and been chased by Mothman, also claimed to have seen a dead dog lying by the road. That dead dog later disappeared. I don't think anyone would have stolen a dead dog, and I'm not certain about many predators in the area that could have carried a full-grown German shepherd away like it was a stick. But oh, that's not all of the stories that were reported, not by a long shot. On the 16th of October, 1966, Marcella Bennett, her toddler Tina, and her brother and sister-in-law were away visiting relatives near the TNT area where Mothman seems to have been calling home at the time. Arriving at the relative's house, the party discovered that the relatives that they wanted to see were not home, so they headed back outside. As Marcella unlocked the car and saw what she described as a feathered gray man standing right near her, she went into shock. Shocked to the core, Marcella stood staring at the creature while her brother screamed at her to run. Well, finally, she turned and fell on her daughter, pulled herself up, picked up her child, and ran inside. 
The whole family hid behind locked doors, desperately telephoning for the police. The creature came onto the porch and pushed at the door to get in. Looking in windows and shuffling around, it was gone by the time the police arrived. And we've all seen the movie that Will Smith starred in, Men in Black. But could you imagine Men in Black being in or around Point Pleasant? Mary Heyer was a reporter who worked at the Point Pleasant office of the Athens Messenger newspaper. She was by all accounts a reputable, down-to-earth kind of woman. And she was not given to flights of fancy, and she was trained by years of being a reporter to be observant and rational. Mary had been involved in reporting on the Mothman and had been the recipient of more than 500 telephone calls. People that were reporting sightings of the monster. Also, people reporting UFOs and other strange occurrences in the two years in which he was active before the Silver Bridge collapsed. It was January of 1967. A strange little man came into Mary's office after hours and started asking questions, first about lights in the sky, then asking for directions. He was very short and wearing thick Coke bottle glasses, as Mary described it. He had a strangely unfashionable haircut and spoke oddly. As he talked, the little fellow moved closer and closer to Mary, and she began to feel a sense of panic. She called in a co-worker, and he took out a pen from her desk, stared at it, and unexpectedly burst out laughing, and then sharply ran out. Well, this creepy little troll apparently visited a lot of homes in the community that night, passing himself off as a reporter, or trying to. Mary saw him around the town a few more times in the following weeks, but he never would speak to her. He always tried to get the hell out of Dodge. He drove off. Mary Heyer died in 1970. So, the curse continues. Point Pleasant did not become a safe and delightful place after the Silver Bridge collapsed for some time. Instead, it was continuously being shaken by heartbreak after heartbreak. In 1976, a teenager called Harriet Sisk killed her infant daughter, Debbie. While in the Mason County Jail, her husband Bruce forced his way into her home with a sawed-off shotgun. And once inside, he blew up the building with a bag of dynamite, killing not only himself and his wife, but three law enforcement officers and wounding 11 more. Then in 1978, the Pleasant's power station at Willow Island, near Point Pleasant, became the setting of the Willow Island disaster. 51 construction workers were killed when scaffolding was knocked down by falling concrete, causing the whole construction site to plummet to the ground below. That's a hell of a lot of disasters for such a small area in such a short time, don't you think? Could all of this be related to the Chief Cornstalk curse? In a moment, we speak to a man who says when he visited the small riverfront town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, he had a strange sense that something wasn't right. And witness testimonies put Mothman sightings far more recent than we had thought. Can't get enough of the Mountain Mysteries? Subscribe to the Mountain Mysteries official Patreon 
and get access to early commercial-free episodes on certain tiers, free loot from the Mountain Mysteries, and even archives that include all episodes and behind-the-scenes audio and footage. And coming soon, the Mountain Mysteries YouTube episodes, including private footage, interviews, and we'll tell you what our opinions really are and why we feel the way we feel on some of these cases. You can also make one-time donations to our PayPal, which is linked in the show notes of this and all other episodes. It's not a mystery on how to get more out of the Mountain Mysteries. So what about this curse? It's said that that land along the Ohio River and into West Virginia is some of the most haunted in the nation if not the world. Native Americans have considered this land afflicted and inhabited with ghosts, strange lights, and strange creatures. Some people believe this region contains a portal to another world, allowing certain creatures and phantoms to come and go at will. Others say a powerful Shawnee leader cursed the area in vengeance of his bloody murder and that the white man's brutality in taking the land created this curse. Many call it the curse of Cornstalk. It's said to be real and brought with it phantoms like the Mothman and many disasters like tornadoes, explosions, bridge collapses, train derailments, and plane crashes. Who was Cornstalk? Chief Cornstalk was born approximately 1720 and died November 10, 1777. He was one of the most formidable leaders of the Shawnee Nation respected and feared among his people. Cornstalk adamantly opposed European settlement west of the Ohio River during his youth. But later in life, he became an advocate for peace. Determined to keep that peace, Cornstalk, along with Red Hawk of the Delaware tribe, led a diplomatic mission to Fort Randolph on the 7th of November, 1777. Captain Arbuckle, the fort's commander, took the leaders hostage, thinking that they could fend off the other tribes if they knew Cornstalk had been captured. But here's where the story gets complicated. Despite being hostages, the leaders were treated well. They were given comfortable quarters, good food, and other luxuries. Cornstalk was said to even help his captors by plotting maps along the Ohio River. This led to some believing that his hostage status may have been voluntary. On November 9, 1777, Cornstalk's son came to visit his father but was detained. The next day, gunfire was heard near the Kanawha River. When Arbuckle's men went to investigate, they discovered that two soldiers who had been in the stockade had escaped. Ambushed by a group of Indians, only one escaped and the other was killed. When Arbuckle's men returned the body to the fort, the other soldiers became enraged and broke into Cornstalk's quarters, determined to execute him. Surprised by the attack, Cornstalk rose to his defense. The soldiers, despite their intent, said they had never seen such bravery, causing them to stop in their tracks if only momentarily. It was said that Cornstalk was shot eight times before falling. Before his death, however, it was said he spoke this curse. 
I was the border man's friend. Many times, I have saved him and his people from harm. I never warred with you, but only to protect our wigwams and lands. I refused to join your pale-faced enemies with the Redcoats. I came to the fort as your friend, and you murdered me. You have murdered by my side my young son. For this, may the curse of the Great Spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it be blighted in its hopes. May the strength of the peoples be paralyzed by the stains of our blood. Cornstalk was buried overlooking the junction of the Ohio and Kanawha Rivers. His body remained there until 1840 when his bones were moved to the Mason County Courthouse. A monument was erected to him in 1899. In the 1950s, a new courthouse was built, and Cornstalk's remains were placed in an aluminum box and reinterred in a corner of the town's Tuindy Weep Park. The Mothman was subject of one episode of the TV series Unsolved Mysteries. There was also an entire episode of Paranormal Witness dedicated to a couple who claimed to have had a terrifying experience with the Mothman. Some people have explained away the Mothman as a large sandhill crane. The glowing eyes could easily be that of the normal eyes reflecting light from another source, like a flashlight or car headlights. To this day, people claim to have seen the Mothman before disasters like 9-11 and the collapse of the 35th West Bridge in Minneapolis. Recently, people have been witnessing the Mothman in the Chicago area, as lately as 2020, prompting people to wonder if there's an impending disaster coming, like the Silver Bridge collapse. Here are some depicted eyewitness accounts. I was enjoying an evening with my girlfriend and taking a well-deserved break from my studies. We decided to go out and enjoy the unusually warm weather that we were having and go for a walk. As we walked towards a community park near the campus, we were talking about our classes when a commotion against a group of people caught our attention. As we looked towards the group of about four or five people, something caught my eye and I looked up to see this thing flying overhead. It looked like a man with wings. He flew about 10 or 12 feet above us and was perfectly silhouetted against the evening sky. In all honesty, it looked like an immensely oversized sugar glider. The kind I would see back home in Tasmania. It had the rough shape of a sugar glider, but its eyes were nothing like the soft eyes of a glider. They glowed red. We saw it for about four seconds before it disappeared from view. At first, I thought I saw a man in a hang glider but it was those bloody eyes that made me think otherwise. Here, a terrifying incident at UIC changes a young woman's outlook forever. These are the events that happened on Friday, September 30th, 2011, in the area around Miller Park in the University Park neighborhood in Chicago, Illinois, approximately one block from the main campus of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Things began like any normal Friday night. I and a couple of friends were going out to have a few drinks at a local bar. As I got to my apartment, I jumped in the shower to start getting ready while my roommate went to her room to get ready. I finished and walked out of the bathroom to my room to start getting ready to go out for the night. 
As I started to get dressed, I heard my roommate scream loudly. I dropped what I was doing and ran to her room to see if she was alright. I walked in to see her cowering in the corner of her room, white as a ghost and shaking. She was babbling hysterically, saying something was looking at her from the window. I looked towards the window and didn't see anything but the light coming from the other apartments across the courtyard. I asked what she had seen and tried to tell her that she might have been mistaken. We live on the third floor of a five-story apartment building, and nothing is outside the window but a 30-foot drop straight down to the courtyard below. My roommate was hysterical and scared out of her wits. I took her to the living room and sat her on the couch. I then went to my room to put on a robe or a nightshirt, since I was only in my underwear. My roommate didn't want to be left alone and actually followed me to my room and waited there as I put on a robe and joined her in the living room. After about 20 minutes of calming her down, she finally told me what she had seen outside of her window. She stated that she was getting dressed, and when she turned to face the mirror on her dresser, she turned around to see two brightly lit orange eyes staring out at her. These eyes were attached to a creature that was staring back at her through the window. My friend lost it and started screaming hysterically and backed herself into the corner. She said that she was filled with this overwhelming feeling of complete and total terror. She felt like the creature was looking at her as though she was prey. She said she felt like a rabbit that was about to be pounced upon by an eagle. I tried to rationalize with her what she had seen, telling her that it could have been an optical illusion or maybe it was the jitters from a week of hard studying. She dismissed everything, saying that she had seen what she had seen. As I sat there comforting her, my cell phone rang from my room. I got up and ran to my room, and I snatched it from my dresser top and answered it. It was my boyfriend and one of his buddies, and they were talking a mile a minute. It sounded like they were out of breath. As I tried to get them to slow down, I walked past my roommate's open door, and to my absolute horror, I saw a pair of glowing red eyes looking through the window right at me. They stared at me for about three to four seconds before whatever it was abruptly left. Like my friend, I totally lost it and screamed at the top of my lungs and sprinted to the living room. My boyfriend was now screaming on the phone, What's wrong? What's wrong? Within two minutes, he and his best friend were pounding on the door of our apartment, followed shortly thereafter by one of our neighbors who had heard us screaming. Once we assured the neighbors that we were fine and that they did not have to call the CPD for us, we shut the door and I immediately lost it when my boyfriend held me. We told him what my roommate had seen in the window and that whatever it was had come back again, and that's when I had seen it. He then began to tell us that he and his buddy were on their way to our apartment to pick us up when they had seen what they described as a large bat with glowing red eyes. It was perched on top of a basketball hoop in the neighborhood park. They stated that it saw them and had alighted into the air with an audible whoosh. He states that there were about six people in the park and that all of them had seen it when it had taken off. He states that there was no way anyone could have missed it. It was about six to seven feet tall, dark gray to black, and those eyes glowed with the intensity of two glowing embers. He says that they saw it easily when it took off and headed away from the park due to both the lights of the city as well as the nearly full moon that night. They lost sight of the creature after about five seconds. That's when he picked up the phone and called me. He says that when they heard me start screaming, they sprinted the block and a half to the apartment. Needless to say, none of us went out that night, and my boyfriend and his buddy stayed with us through the weekend. My roommate refused to go back into our room until it was well after daylight. She closed and locked the window and drew the blinds shut. 
She said that's the only way that she felt secure to be in there after dark. I'm still wary about coming home or going out after dark, even though I know I have to do it for both school and work. I hope that whatever it was, was sufficiently scared off by two insanely screaming college students, and that I hope that I never see it again. I don't think that neither I nor my roommate will ever be the same again after this. There is one interesting fact. My boyfriend told me when I saw him on Tuesday that a few students around the campus, UIC, had been talking about a large bat that some people had seen on Friday night. A lot of the people who spoke about it were spooked by it. I never figured that anything like this would or could be seen in a city as large as Chicago or a campus as busy and bustling as UIC. It totally makes me wonder what it truly was and if it meant us any harm. And still yet, another experience. I was out with my son on by the banks of the Little Cayume, on the northwestern side of the Hedgewoods Park, at a spot where we have had some success catching fish in the past. It's located by the Trestle Bridge that runs east to west over near 130th Street. It's a spot that takes a little effort to get to, but it has some payoffs in catching some medium-sized catfish. It was about 7.30 p.m., and we were packing up our gear when we heard something that sounded like a train when it breaks and tries to slow down. The problem was that there was no train going by at that moment. When the train goes by, you usually feel it going by. You also hear it as it's pretty loud. On this day, it was quiet with the occasional sound of trucks or cars going about. We heard the sound again and saw something fly from our left towards the trees on the other side of the river. We thought it looked like a giant bird, but it was solid black. Within a minute, we heard the sound again, and this thing shot straight up and over the trestle bridge, then headed off down the river. This thing was unlike any bird we had ever seen in our lives. It was solid black and had to be about the size of a full-grown man. It had wings that must have been 10 feet from tip to tip. It flew up and out of sight in seconds. We couldn't really get many details as this thing flew like a literal bat out of hell. It was on the other side of the river. We stood there and watched it fly away, oblivious to our presence. I stood there blown away, but then my son piped up and said he had read something about giant bat sightings that have occurred in Chicago lately. Maybe this was one of them. Packed up our gear and got the hell out of there as fast as we could. We didn't want to chance this thing coming back and seeing us. Later that night, my son showed me the websites that, where the reports were listed, and that led me to report the sighting. I'm sorry that I couldn't give me more details on this thing, but quite frankly, I thank my lucky stars that we weren't close enough to see any details. A Kentucky man will call Mark was on vacation with his family. As a part of that vacation, a stop was made at Point Pleasant, West Virginia. What he encountered there nearly ensured that he would never return. I was 16, 17. Okay, tell me what happened. So, we uh, found camping in Galapagos, and we decided to go on up the river and just have a nice night out on Memorial Day, mm-hmm. your weekend. So, as we get up towards Point Pleasant, we decided that we needed more beer. So, me, my uncle, and uh, his cousin go into the town of Point Pleasant. When we get in there, we can't find nobody. 
I mean, we docked right there on the side of the river where their stage is, the Riverside stage, and we searched. There wasn't nobody in that town to be found. We even passed the McDonald's on foot, and lights were on the side of McDonald's, but they wasn't nobody buying no burgers. They wasn't nobody out in the drive-thru. They wasn't nothing. So you're you're saying that there wasn't a soul in town, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, we seen absolutely nobody. At this point, you know, we decided just going back to the boat. It was a little bit too sketchy for all of us. Okay. And as we're heading back to the boat, we run into this old man wearing the Vietnam era camouflage, you know, jacket. And it's got the name tape on it. And to this day, I can't remember what the name tape said. It was all faded out. But uh, we asked the old man, you know, hey, where's the liquor store? And, you know, where's everybody at? And he just gave us this blank stare. I mean, like, we were speaking Greek. How did you feel when he did that? It was eerie. I mean, we weren't that far away from where, you know, the Silver Bridge was anyhow. And he just turned, gave us that stare, then turned back around and kept walking. At this point, you know, we were out. I mean, it was a, nope, we need to get out of town. We didn't even go any further up the river. We turned around and went back to Galapolis. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was just one of those, it's like, we've had enough. You know, you get that bad omen, that just gut feeling that says go. So we hauled out. Well, that's kind of like a creep factor level 10, given everything else that's happened there. The Silver Bridge collapsing, the alleged curse of Chief Cornstalk, and then, of course, the Mothman itself, the Men in Black, and... Well, and then there's the curious case of Ingrid Cold. Many say that he's an alien, not from this world, and there's others yet that say that Ingrid Cold is actually the Mothman. Well, around 1966, a salesman in West Virginia actually claims to have met Ingrid Cold and had a conversation with him. Now, what you're about to hear is an interview that's over 50 years old, but it aired for 30 minutes, allegedly the day after this fellow met him. His name is Woodrow Derenberger. And here, remarkable as it is, is his story. We are here to talk to a man that allegedly did make contact with such an object within the Parkersburg area last evening, November the 2nd, 1966, at approximately 7.25 p.m. The incident allegedly took place on Interstate Highway 77 near the interchange of Route Number 47. This gentleman is a salesman in the area. He has been a resident of the area for the past 50 years, and he has uh, given us permission to interview him, uh, to show his face, and to call him by name. This in itself takes a lot of initiative, and to be very plain, a lot of know-how. Mr. Dornberger, in your own words, would you please relate what happened last night? Well, I was, I am a salesman, and I drive a truck, and last night, uh, shortly after 7 o'clock, I was coming from Marietta, Ohio, coming down Interstate 77, and just before I came to the intersection of uh, Route 47, there was a car past me, overtaking me from behind, and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object and as the car ahead or the car behind passed me this object 
was following close behind it, and it swerved directly in front of my truck, turning crosswise. And when it turned crosswise, it slowed down. It started slowing, not abruptly or too fast, but it gave me plenty of time to step on my brakes and slow down with it. But it forced me to come to a complete stop. As soon as I had stopped, there was a door opened in the side of this vehicle, and this man stepped out and came directly to me, or came to the truck. He walked to the right-hand side of the truck, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck, and I had done what he asked. And this man stood there, and he, uh, he first asked me what I was called, and I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened. We wish you no harm. He said, we mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And uh, I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. That was the name that he was called by. And he asked me what the city of Parkinsburg, he pointed to the lights. He didn't point, but he gave the impression that he was pointing, and he asked me what that was called. And I told him it was a Parkersburg, it was a city, a town. And he asked me if most all the people lived in my, this city or town. And I explained to him uh, that it was a place of business, it's where we transacted our business, that the people lived in communities, outlying communities, most of the people. And when I told him that this was a city, he said that his where his home was, that that was called a gathering. And uh, again, he told me not to be frightened, which I was. I was, I was very frightened. And as far as I can understand, this was all mental. There was no spoken words from him. I knew what he was asking me, but yet he stood there and his mouth did not move. He had a smile on his face. He was he appeared very courteous and friendly. And after I talked with him a while, he told me he would see me. He said, we will see you again, and he left in his vehicle. Now, Mr. Dernberger, for the sake of our television audience here, uh, the, the words that you used, cold, cold would be like... Uh, Cold is his name. This is how it sounded to you that his name was Cold. Yes. And the the word gathering was like uh, we would know together or something like this. Yes, that's what he meant. That was the impression that he gave. And he did not move his lips nor utter any sound whatsoever. He he talked with you in in telepathy then. That was right. That his lips did not move. He uttered no words at all. But you talked. I mean, you, he did. Yes, I talked. He told me, he told me twice that I could either talk or I could think, which either would be better or easier for me. This was an instant thing. This wasn't. There was no hesitation on his part nor on your part. You knew immediately what he was That's communicating to you, and he knew immediately what you were communicating to him. That is right. Uh, what did this object, what color was this object? This object was between a real 
dark gray and black. I would call it a charcoal color. It glistened in my headlights. My headlights, when it stopped me, my headlights were shining directly on it. It, uh... Were there lights in it? No, I seen no lights of any kind. There was no lights in it. There were windows? If there was windows, I couldn't detect them. I couldn't see them. And when the door, now, uh, you could, you had a very clear view from behind the wheel of your van, uh, uh, the driver's seat of your van. Yes. He came forward toward you. Be did he tell you, did he communicate to you to roll your window down before he got to the side of your truck? What, was he still in your headlights when he communicated? He was, he was still in my headlights, walking in a, in a kind of a diagonal way across my headlights to the right-hand side of my truck when he told me then to roll down, if I would please roll down the window on the right-hand side of my truck. Uh, now, in the beginning, you were driving south on 77. Correct. From Marietta. Yes. Toward uh, Mineral Wells. Yes. A car passed you. It did. Immediately behind this car, of what distance? I would say between 25 and 30 feet. It was very close to the other car. Uh, came this object. Yes. Uh, hovering how far off the ground, would you say? Well, when it when I first seen it, uh, I... I, I seen it out of the corner of my eye, and I first thought it was just another car, and then I knew it wasn't a car almost immediately, and I turned and looked at it. And I would say it was approximately 30 to 35 feet long, and it came directly across past my truck and immediately turned sideways. It was completely across the two-lane highway. It was completely blocked me. I went partly <coughs> off of the road onto the berm to try to go around it, but I couldn't get around it. it... Now, let me ask you something. Uh, this, then when it came in front of your car, may I have, uh, the, uh, Mr. Dernberger was kind enough to draw us a sketch of what this object appeared to him, uh, and we'll, we'll let you see it here. Uh, I'm correct then that the, the object came alongside of your car, veered in front of your car, and as you slowed, or your truck, and as you slowed your truck down, the object slowed down, and then when it landed, it didn't land, it, it stayed off the ground. Yes, it was approximately eight to ten inches off of the ground, and as soon as it came to a stop immediately, there was a door on the side facing me open, and this man stepped out. And he started walking immediately right to the right-hand side of my truck. Now, this, uh, that would be then uh, the picture we have on our screen right now. That would, be the, that would be the angle. Your truck would be going right at that. Is that the idea? That's, that's Point right. right. Now, where would the door be in, uh, in that particular object well, there? It would be right where the large part of the drawing where, starts. Where the hump is? Oh, yes, in, right in the where front the of the hump. Would it be in this direction here? Uh, back toward the right, th no, that's too far, Mr. Wilson. Back up front farther. About here? Right there. Not even here. Approximately right there. And the door, it, uh, it resembled just an ordinary automobile door when it opened. All right, now this, it, 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 it didn't open from a bottom hinge or a top hinge, it opened from a side hinge. It opened from the. We know opens. Yes, it opened from the side. How about, uh, would you, how was this gentleman? Uh, how was this person dressed? Uh, what what well, type of clothing uh, did he wear? He had a top coat on, 
and it was zippered down the front. Uh, his top, uh, the top two buttons, like my coat here, were open, and he, this uh, outfit was a, a shiny material. It was a, a glassy outfit, uh, like it was metallic, I suppose you would call it. And his shirt was a little bit darker than his jacket. And below his coat, he had on trousers of uh, the same kind of a cloth material. And I believe the trousers were just a shade lighter than his coat. Which would have been a uh, navy blue. The coat yes. would have been a dark blue. Yes. Coat. Uh, what about the uh, what about the texture of his skin? The color of his skin? Uh, his eyes, eyebrows, eyelashes, hairline. Uh, what what were these? Uh, what did he look like? He looked perfectly natural and normal as any human being. He had uh, his face looked like he had a, a good tan, a deep sun tan. He was not too dark. But it was just like he had been out in the sun a lot and had a good tan. His hair was combed straight back, and it was a dark brown. And they, he seemed to have uh, a good thick head of hair. And his eyebrows, his face, uh, his features were no, very normal. Uh, I don't believe that he looked any different from any other man that we'd meet on the street. Now, this ship that he stepped out of, when he came up, when he left the ship and started toward your truck, toward your van, the ship remained there as he walked toward you? Or? No. Immediately that he stepped out of the truck, or out of his vehicle, the door closed and the vehicle lifted straight up. It went straight, just as straight as you could point upward. And it went up, and uh, I did see it, and uh, occasionally as I was talking to this man, I looked up and it was still there. It was approximately 50 to 75 feet off of the ground, and it stayed there all the time this man was talking to me. Now, when he did, uh, when he talked to you, did he uh, turn his head away as I'm turning my head away now, or did he uh, stare right at you, or did uh, uh, what, what was he, what was his movement? He watched me when he was talking to me. He looked at me directly in the face. But as uh, there were several cars and several big trucks passed, and uh, as these big trucks would pass, he would turn his head and glance at the trucks. But there was no... Uh, did you look at the object in the air while he was talking with you? Did you glance up at Yes. The I, in fact, I, I leaned forward and looked kind of out of my windshield, and I could see it. It was still... So then this communication that you that he had with you would not necessarily depend upon him looking you in the eye or anything like that, then, evidently? No, no, I, he did not. In fact, when he first got out of the vehicle, when he told me to roll the window down, he, it was impossible for him to see my eyes because I was behind my own headlights, and he could not have done it. How old would you say he was? He looked to be approximately 35, 40 years old. He was a very nice-looking man. He was neat. And uh, what specifically did he say to you? What did he say? Hi, it's a nice evening. Or what? I mean, what, why did he stop you? What? Did, what was his? When he when he asked me to roll the window down, which I did, I rolled the window down, and he told me he said, uh, "I would like to talk to you." And uh, I just couldn't answer him. I just couldn't speak. And at that that is the first time he told me not to be frightened. He said he wished me no harm. And uh, 
he talked a little bit in this vein. He asked me why. He said, why are you fighting of us? He said, we are the same as you. He said, we eat, we breathe, we sleep, we bleed, even as you do. He said, we are like you. He, and he said, please be not frightened. Did he say where he was from? He did not say where he was from, but when he asked me what Parkinsburg was, and I told him, he said, at, uh, at where, I, where I stay or where I live, my home, he said, we call this a gathering. Did he say anything about him? Did he volunteer? Uh, did, he, did he have a family? What did, what, did, uh, did he ask you what you did for a living, where you were? No, he, he, he asked me if I, if I worked for a living. He asked me if I, if I had to work to live. And I explained to him what I was. I, he even asked me where I lived, and I told him. And uh, I told him that I was a salesman. And he told me that he was a searcher. A searcher? A searcher. But he didn't tell you what he was searching for? No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't offer me no uh, information other than this. But uh, two or three times he did tell me. He said, Mr. Dernberger, look at me. And he said, do not be frightened. Look at me. And I believe if I hadn't have been frightened, I believe that if I had have looked to him, I believe that I could have understood a lot more of uh, what he wanted me to than what I actually did. But you just have this feeling, you mean? But I have that feeling. I, uh, I, w I was very nervous. I was very upset after this happened. And after I got home and after I had calmed down, I can look back now and I see where I should have asked him questions, and I believe I had the impression that he would have answered these questions readily. Do you believe in flying saucers? I have never have believed in flying saucers before. I, I have heard about them a few times. I've even read in the paper about flying objects, but I... Honestly, never did believe in it. Do you believe in them now? I believe in what I seen last night. I believe it was, I don't believe it was a saucer, but I believe it was an alien, some kind of an aircraft, a spacecraft or something. Mr. Dernberger, we have a program on radio called The Joe Pine Show, and Mr. Pine interviews extraordinary people in various uh, that are involved in various uh, occupations and, and some non-occupational type of uh, businesses. And have, have you ever heard of Joe Pine? No, I haven't. I don't believe I have. All right. On uh, one of his recent broadcasts, he talked with a man. He interviewed a man who had not only had somewhat similar, uh, somewhat similar experience to what you had last evening, but uh, this gentleman went one step further, and he had taken, uh, been taken aboard a spaceship, which, by the way, was uh, described quite similar, similarly to what you described this particular ship. Uh, and this ship, uh, with these people who looked like we do and so forth, took him to Venus and took him to Mars and brought him back home again. What, what would you think of a story like that if somebody told it to you? What would you think of the person telling you that story? Would you believe that now? Would you believe that well, that could be possible? Now, Mr. Uh, Mans, I believe now that that could happen. If someone would have told me yesterday before this happened, I would have frankly thought he was a nut. But I honestly believe now that it could happen. 
I wouldn't, I'm, I'm surely not going to say it couldn't happen. Uh, now, these men last night, or this man, he made, uh, gave me no indication that he wanted me on his ship. He didn't ask me to get out of my truck. As I say, he was very friendly and courteous. And, uh, you drink? Do no, you drink? I do not drink. Okay? Other, I mean, you don't drink intoxicating beverages. No, I do not drink any intoxicating beverages at all. I, I don't believe in drinking, and I just don't. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I saw last night, I know that I saw it. It was no figment of imagination. It was there, and I was there. And now, you, you said that uh, he, he also made the statement that we will see you again. When he was getting ready to leave, he stepped back from the truck about one step, and he said, uh, Mr. Durnberger, we will see you again. He didn't say I, he said we will see you again. And uh, when he got in the truck, or when he got in the vehicle, the door opened as he walked up to the vehicle, and he stepped up into it, and there was another man or I couldn't describe this man because I could just see his outline, but I did see his arm and hand reach outside and take a hold of the door and pull the door closed. And when the door closed, it made an audible noise, like you'd shut the, a door on of a big, heavy automobile. What kind of a noise did this object make when it was uh, hovering above the ground six or ten inches and, and then uh, upon... Uh, letting the man off, uh, and you say it went back up in the air 75 or 100 feet. Uh, this is a, an object now that we're talking about that's nine, eight or nine feet high, 36 uh, feet long, yes. and, and about eight or nine feet across that's in, right. in breadth. Uh, uh, it would, although it's really not too large an object, it is a, it's larger than what a, an automobile, for example. Yes. Uh, and to lift something like that would take a lot of... Uh, a lot of force to do this. What kind of a sound did this make? It, uh, the, the sound when it was hovering over the ground and when it was lifting, I, I couldn't distinguish no difference in the sound. It was a low fluttering noise. It, uh, well, if you've ever heard the blades of a helicopter as it was idling, sitting on the ground, that would be the closest way that I can describe the noise it made, but it was not very, very loud. Can you, can you make a noise that it sounded well, like? Uh, or are you it, sound, it was a fluttering noise. It sounded something like... But it's a sound you had never heard before. I had never heard anything like it before in my life. Let's, let's get back to this. Uh, let's get back to the fellow here now. He was how tall? I would say he was close to six feet tall, and he had weighed around 180 or 185. I'm six feet tall. He's heavier he was, than I am. He was about your height. But heavier than what Yes, I he am. was Facial. heavier. His face was more full. His How much do you figure that I would weigh? I'd say about 165 to 70. Uh, you, you're right on the button. That's, that's right. Uh, there were no lights. This was now. This was dark. This time of night, you were. It was dark. It was completely dark. But I never, at any time, turned my headlights off, and I also had the lights in the truck on. I have a, a cab light, and then I have lights back through my truck, mm -hmm. and uh, these lights were on. It gave good illumination up close to the truck, 
but not too far back. But while he was standing and talking to me, I could see him clearly. And at several times, there was cars passed and trucks passed. And uh, especially cars that came up from behind me, as they came around this bend, they were throwing their headlights directly on the back end of my truck and was throwing a good light on him. But no one slowed down or No one slowed down. Like as, but they would have easily been able to see him. Yes, they could have seen him. Do you suppose maybe somebody in our audience might have passed you last evening? Well, standing there talking with this fellow. I know that there was several cars past me, and one car, as this thing settled down in front of me, was coming to meet me. And when this thing was directly in front of me, this car came to meet me. And his headlights were, it was in a kind of a curve. We, this guy came to meet me, would be making a left-hand curve, and his lights would be shining off to the right. But I still think that he could have seen and probably did see whatever this object was. Glenn, I've been monopolizing here. You uh, sneak in with a question. You have some right. questions you'd like to ask? <laughs> I know personally that Mr. Dernberger was scared because I talked to him a short time after this happened by telephone last night. What did your wife think when you told her about this episode? Well, my wife was, uh, she took it pretty calmly, but uh, it kind of made her nervous. She, uh, she worried today before I started back to work. She thought uh, the same thing could happen again, and uh, she believes that what I told her, and she's pretty upset herself about it. This thought communication, uh, which is <clears throat> apparently extrasensory perception or mental telepathy, when uh, was you first aware that this was the way that you were communicating? Well, uh, when he first told me to come, uh, when he first got out of his vehicle and started over to my car, that is when he first told me or asked me if I'd roll down my window. At that time, right at that minute, I didn't know that uh, it was mental telepathy. But when he came to the door and looked in through the window from the right-hand side of the truck, then I realized that he was speaking, but his lips were not moving. Is this the thing that frightened you, that shook this you up? This is what made me, that frightened me more than anything I believe that had happened up until that time, even more so than when I actually seen the object. <laughs> and I, I know that uh, <clears throat> he told me not to be frightened. He was very reassuring in his attitude. He was friendly. He smiled continuously while I talked to him. He kept his arms folded, uh, something like this, all the time. His, his arms were folded <clears throat> completely at all times, like I said. His hands were hidden. And at the time I talked to him, I didn't think nothing about it. But after I started home, I did wonder why he stood that way. And as I believe one of you gentlemen asked me before uh, about his hands, when this man closed the door, when he got back into the vehicle, I distinctly seen this other man's hand an arm, and uh, his arm looked completely normal in his hand. Now, you described the uh, you described the attire of this person uh, more as a uh, more as a suit, such as I'm wearing, than than a uniform. Yes, that we I, know as a uniform. I would say that it wasn't a uniform. It uh, it didn't have you know the the cut of a uniform. It was more like you'd uh, wear. A, Suit uh, to town, or was it a cloth like this? 
Well, it was a bright, shiny color cloth. It looked like a, what my wife calls a hard fabric that glistened when the lights would shine on it. Uh, a luminous type. Yes. Uh, the arm that came out, another arm from inside came out to close the door when yes, the gentleman got back. Uh, was that arm clothed uh, in the same type of... I would say it was identically the same. It, it looked the same to me exactly. Now he had on, from what you could see, he had on a shirt that buttoned he, with I, a collar but no tie. He had no tie, but I know that the top button of his shirt at the throat, I know he had a button there. I seen that. I looked at that button. Mm -hmm. But now his top coat was zippered. It had a zipper on the front of his coat, and uh, he looked perfectly normal. He why do you suppose? <clears throat> why do you suppose that he came around to uh, the right-hand side of your truck rather than the nearest side to you? Why do you figure that he came around that side? Well, the only reason that I could. Uh, Give for that was that I had uh, two wheels off on the berm and two wheels sitting on the highway where I'd been trying to get around this before he got me completely stopped. And I believe that this man actually knew the traffic conditions. I believe he knew that he uh, would be safe on the other now side. Now, if he didn't use uh, words in communicating with you, if he used thoughts, why did he have you roll your window down so that he could hear you? So I did you feel I, that this was why he didn't. I believe that he had me to roll the window down so he could look at me without looking through the glass because the glass was very rain street uh -huh. where it had been raining. Uh -huh. And uh, that is the impression that I got, that he wanted the window down so I'd be in closer communication with him or so we could see each other. Uh -huh. The, uh, the uh, time when he, when he left you, when he... When your conversation was ended, how did you know that it was all over? How, did he say, well, that's, did he say anything to the effect that, well, I've got to be going now, I have to go, I know, uh, what did, how did he terminate this conversation? He, he terminated his conversation very quickly. Uh, one second we were talking there, and the next thing this vehicle settled down right beside, he stepped back from the truck, and the, when he stepped back, this thing came right back down. Now, it wasn't crosswise the road when it came down. It was heading in the same direction I was. It was right. at the length of okay. the truck. And when it settled down, he turned and walked up around in front of my headlights and back. But just before he started, he said, uh, Mr. Dernberger, we will be seeing you again. You believe he will? Well, uh, I did believe it. But now I, I don't know how to an answer that honestly because I'm afraid he will, and I don't want him to, but I, I have a feeling that he will. You're apprehensive that he yes. will see you, yet, uh, yet, again. You, yet you would probably like the experience again. Well, I don't, think, prepared this time? I don't think that I'd be quite so frightened. I think that I could ask him a few questions. I think I could ask him just about as many as he's asked me now. Well, Mr. Dunberger, we're, uh, because of time, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to come down here with us.
By all accounts, Woodrow Derenberger was a stand-up man, a Class A citizen, but whether you believe his account or not is entirely up to you. Well, the list goes on and on, but as it turns out, that's not the only places that the Mothman has been sighted. As a matter of fact, it's been quite recently that he was sighted in the Windy City near a major metropolitan airport that is also an international airport. You might have heard of it. O'Hare International Airport. Manuel Navarrete of UFO Clearinghouse said he recently spoke to a pilot who claimed to have seen what he called the O'Hare Mothman in August of 2019 while aboard a shuttle at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. The man told Navarrete that he had been a commercial pilot for two different airlines since before 2008, and prior to that he'd served for six years in the United States Air Force. He added that he has over 9,000 hours of flight time, and he has flown a variety of aircraft in his career in virtually all types of weather. The incident he recounted to Navarrete reportedly took place on Thursday, August 8, 2019, at about 6 p.m. According to the man's report, he had flown into O'Hare the previous day and had stayed at a hotel for the night. He was due to fly out at 10 p.m. to the U.K. He said he was taking the airport shuttle toward the terminal, and as he looked out the window, he saw a large human with enormous wings and glowing red eyes perched upon a rail and looking straight at him. The being appeared to be squatting down on the rail, but had its wings completely open and moved them slowly as he stared at the shuttle bus as they drove by. He knew it was watching him, as its head swiveled and followed the shuttle as they passed. He said its eyes were locked on him the entire time. He writes that he heard the stories of the O'Hare Mothman, or as some have called it, Batman, but simply dismissed them as nothing more than fantasy and an urban legend that was associated with an already spooky airport. But what happened to him that evening changed his entire view of those stories. This report was submitted in response to a May 31, 2020 sighting in which a pilot at O'Hare said that he and his co-pilot saw, quote, a large black human-like creature fly up and into the sky at approximately 7.30 a.m. while taxiing on the runway. The following is a direct quotation. I received the witness report as a result of my investigation with the first pilot who reported his and his co-pilot sighting of a winged humanoid earlier this month, Navarrete explained. The pilot had told me that he had heard of fellow pilots having similar sightings via social media. I was put in touch with this witness via the first pilot, and after reading the pilot's sightings, I reached out to him to conduct a phone interview. It was after that phone interview that we set up a face-to-face -face interview about his sighting. End quote. The investigator gleaned more details of the encounter during his face-to-face -face interview with the witness. He said the witness advised him that he was being driven from the hotel to the international terminal that evening, that he was the only person on the shuttle that evening, and that he was seated approximately halfway down on the driver's side of the vehicle. Navarrete continued to state that the witness told him that they arrived at the terminal about five minutes after the encounter, 
and that when he disembarked, he looked around to see if he could see anything, but saw nothing out of the ordinary. When asked if he could give a description of what he saw that evening, the witness gave the following description of the entity seen. The being was squatted down. His arms appeared to be gripping the guardrail and were long and very skinny, almost bony, and were jet black. He did not get a good look at the fingers of the entity, but he described the length of the arms to be about three feet long, although he could not give an accurate measurement. The witness says that even squatting down, the entity was still about four feet tall, and that if he were to stand up, he would have been well over six and a half feet tall. The head was rounded and featureless, other than the two illuminated eyes that he described as ruby red in color. He did note that the head was not overly large and appeared to be rounded at the top. The wings were black and were large and pointed at the end, appearing to be segmented, but still looked like the wings of a large bat. The pilot estimated that the wings had to be at least 10 feet long from tip to tip and about 5 feet in height. They appeared to be taller than the being by at least 2 feet and black in color. When asked about the encounter, the witness stated that the entity did not move at all. It stayed perched on the guardrail, held its ground, and did not move other than to move its head to follow and maintain eye contact with the witness. When asked how he felt during the encounter, the witness said he felt helpless and a little apprehensive, but did not describe any overwhelming feelings of dread or fear. The witness described the entire encounter taking approximately 10 to 15 seconds from beginning to end. Navarrete stated that the witness presented company and federal identification to prove his employment and also showed him photos of his time with his previous employer and his military service. Navarrete further added that he also answered any and all questions regarding his background and sighting without hesitation and did not deviate from his initial sighting report. It's the opinion of the investigator that this witness is credible and has satisfied all claims as to his employment and background. Navarrete found his sighting to be valid and worthy of follow-up investigation and further research. There was no word on whether or not the driver of the shuttle saw the creature, or if they did, how they responded. This is the most recent reported sighting in a series of unusual sighting reports that have taken place in the vicinity of O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. The sightings report in that area so far include a May 31st sighting by a pilot at O'Hare International who said that he and his co-pilot saw, quote, a large black human-like creature fly up and into the sky, end quote, while taxiing on the runway. A March 3rd sighting by investigator Manuel Neverett of a strange flying creature with membranous wings near O'Hare. A February 21st sighting by a security guard at O'Hare who said he saw what appeared to be a very tall human, but it was solid black with glowing red eyes. A January 23rd report from a man who said he saw an egg-shaped object fly over O'Hare and shine a brilliant blue light to the ground, through which a person appeared to be taken aboard the craft. 
The December 6th sighting of a red-eyed, winged humanoid near O'Hare. A December 3rd report of a red-eyed flying man from a security person at O'Hare. A November 26th sighting of a seven-foot-tall person with wings outside of O'Hare. A September 29th sighting of a toddler-sized bat creature running like a gorilla near Barrington. An October 30th sighting of a large-winged humanoid in Park Ridge. An October 29th report of a winged humanoid that was accompanied by several other beings who disappeared in a flash of blue light. A late October sighting of an unknown flying human owl in Hoffman Estates. An October 19th sighting of a giant-sized bat outside the Edward Hotel in Rosemont. An October 5th sighting of a tall creature with bright red eyes and large wings near O'Hare. A report from July of a six-foot-tall creature flying over the Des Plaines River near Rosemont. And another sighting from the summer of 2019 by a man who claimed to have seen a large, dark man-sized bat-bird thing flying behind his home in Franklin Park, Illinois. In addition, a statement out of Bensonville described an encounter by a man who had claimed he had witnessed a large dark being with cape-like wings in 2006. This is the latest news in a string of Mothman sightings from within a few hundred mile radius surrounding Lake Michigan, including every state bordering the Great Lake. These sightings ostensibly began in the spring of 2017, but more historical accounts are being reported as more people become aware of this phenomenon. They generally take place in the evening or at night, often in or near a park and around water. Witnesses constantly describe a large, gray, or black bat or bird-like creature, although in a small number of cases, the creature was described as insect-like sometimes with glowing or reflective red, yellow, green, or orange eyes, and humanoid features such as arms and legs are often reported. Some witnesses have reported feeling intense fear and an aura of evil emanating from the creature they encountered. Many of the sightings are also of something seen only briefly or are described only as a flying creature with few details, which leaves open the possibility that a large bird or bird-like being could explain some, although certainly not all, of the encounters. Several associated high strangeness incidents have also occurred alongside the creature sightings, including reports of UFOs, other abnormal flying creatures and strange humanoids, parapsychological incidents, and odd events experienced by those investigating these sightings. Is the Mothman a Sandhill Crane? Or as some theories suggest, an interdimensional being brought on by the Cornstalk Curse? Another theory that I admit may be out there is that the Mothman is an angel. The reason I say that it's out there is purely only because of my own interpretation of what an angel may look like. And the pictures I've seen of the Mothman, well, that just sure as hell doesn't fit. Regardless of what the Mothman is, if he exists at all, which I do which I do believe is entirely possible. So far, his track record seems to lean that he's not here to harm anyone. 
but maybe act as a deterrent or warning. One that we should perhaps in all likelihood not ignore. There are several who stoutly believe in this, myth, urban legend, whatever you want to call it. You must admit that the Mothman has surpassed localities and has expanded into a worldwide phenomenon. On the next episode of The Mountain Mysteries, The Tears of a Star, The Mountain Mystery of Mural Baldrige. Until next time, stay mysterious. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.